A delusional 21-year-old Marquise Unique Cromer began pacing, muttering to himself and laughing hysterically at seemingly nothing on the afternoon of Sunday, September 11, 2016. His father and his father's longtime girlfriend were used to odd behavior from Marquise. He'd battled mental illness since childhood. They ignored it as best they could and continued preparing lunch. Then Marquise did something he hadn't done before. He pulled out a sawed-off shotgun, pointed it at his father, said, I love you, and squeezed the trigger. He wasn't as cordial before firing the fatal shot that killed a Detroit police officer later that night. This is Michigan Crime Stories. Michigan Crime Stories is a podcast that explores murder, mysteries, and mayhem in the Mitten State. Criminal behavior has always enthralled us. It's when societies determine what is and isn't allowed. We assume heinous crimes are committed by monsters, individuals we dehumanize in an effort to make sense of their deeds. Their victims sometimes seem distant, just faded names in a passing headline. But the terrifying truth is that crimes are committed by ordinary people, just like you and me. And many of those crimes happen right in our own backyard. My name is Gus Burns. I'm Darcy Moran. We're reporters for MLive.com and your host for Michigan Crime Stories. This episode is part of a multi-part special on MLive's investigation into the mental health of suspects in police killings. It's told by co-host and reporter on the story, Gus Burns. This episode is titled, Cop Killer by Reason of Insanity. When I uh, was telling them he needed to be locked up because of his behavior, and and they don't like him up, somebody's going to end up getting hurt. Well, he's going to end up getting hurt, but they said there wasn't nothing that they could do because at his age, uh, he would have to do that. I couldn't do it. And then he was younger. When I was trying to get him put somewhere, they said they can't do nothing because they said the only way they could do something, he had to get in trouble. That's Marquise Cromer's father, Sterling Cromer. Doctors and family knew Marquise would need extra help by age three. He had a problem with impulsivity, court records show. They'd later diagnose him with lead poisoning at age four and bipolar disorder at age six. They prescribed the antipsychotic drug Risperdal. At nine, he tried suicide, which resulted in his first psychiatric committal. He was released two weeks later. Then at 12, Marquise was removed from his mother and stepfather's home due to abuse and neglect and placed in a Christian youth home where he tried to hang himself the next year. At 14, he was committed to a psychiatric facility for four days to address severe mood swings and aggressive behavior. At 15, Marquise moved in with his father, who'd recently been released from an Ohio prison after serving nine years for burglary and impersonating a police officer. They barely knew each other. Months later, Marquise lit the house on fire. He was hearing voices, talking to himself about evil people, and claiming CIA agents were trying to kill him. Marquise was sent to a juvenile detention center, where he again tried suicide. He would spend the remainder of his childhood in the custody of the state. He was released from juvenile detention at 18, but jailed shortly afterward. Sterling Cromer convinced his son to visit a neighborhood psychiatric clinic in May of 2015. 
the follow-up assessment read, Mr. Cromer's father expressed concern that Mr. Cromer was making statements such as, people are evil and he wants to kill people. At times he does not dress appropriately for the weather and stripped naked in the middle of the street three weeks ago. He was also shooting a rifle in the middle of the street. His reported symptoms include disrupted sleep, mood swings, irritability, anxiety, physical aggression, anger, psychosis, auditory visual hallucinations, bizarre behavior, depression, and anxiety. The clinic placed Marquise in an intensive outpatient program and prescribed him antipsychotic drugs. The problem is, therapy only works when you go. Pills only work when you swallow them. Then I can't watch every move that he makes. You know, but he said he didn't like taking his medication. So, you know, I couldn't just throw him down and say, well, you know, you're going to take your medication anyway because you ain't around. You know, sometimes I don't even see you for a few days. So I don't know what you're doing. I mean, in my case, it wouldn't matter what I did or where I was at. He was going to still snap sooner or later like that. And it wouldn't even matter who he was around at that particular time. You know, so I think what they would have to do make sure that these people take their medication. They have to go to a doctor or whatever and get checked and make sure that they're taking their medication. Here's Marquise's attorney, Sanford Shulman. I've done over 4,000 cases, almost all homicides, doubles, triples, quadruples, beheadings. I've done it, I've, and I've traveled across the country doing cases. This is one of the most chilling for this reason. He was found incompetent for a retail fraud case. So I'm not sure if you know the history. He comes in front of a judge for a relatively minor case, stealing something. And the judge notes what's going on. Judges sense what's happening in the courtroom. Defense lawyers just can get a sense of a person's ability to communicate with you, what they're talking about, how they're acting, how they're interacting, how they appear, how they're dressed, how they're everything about them. And the judge said, you are not competent to proceed. We want a referral. They referred it. It came out he was incompetent. So he now he's in the jail getting treatment getting the necessary attention that he should get, and there's no bed available for him at the forensic center. So they release him. Life moved on. Marquise popped into his dad's house every now and then, clearly suffering from mental illness. Marquise spent the majority of his time in the streets of Detroit, committing petty theft and squatting in abandoned homes. You know, he caught between a hard brick and a, and a hard place. He can't work nowhere because of his issues that he got going on. He's not getting no income coming in. The only way he's going to get income, he's going to have somebody going to give it to him or he's going to do something illegal to get it. You know, I just felt like when I was trying to get him some help and I told him to lock him up because he needed some help, I felt like they should have done it. You know, especially the psychiatrists and everybody agreed with it, there's something wrong. Because you want to prevent a problem before it happens. You don't want to wait until it happens and then try to do something about it. You know, if I'm you're ready to fall off a mountain, and the person can save me. I don't want them to wait until I fall down and then say what they could have done. Sterling Cromer hoped for the best, but waited for the worst. The worst came in September of 2016. His son became a cop killer. This is Darcy Moran with Michigan Crime Stories, and I'm sitting here with Gus Burns, who reported this story today. Gus, thank you so much. Just to jump right in, this is a pretty tough story to listen to and an interesting one as well. How did we get into talking about this? 
Well, there was a period of time, probably between 2015 to 2017, I was reporting in Detroit, and it just seemed like there was an abnormal amount of police killed. It turned out the killer was either someone who suffered from mental illness or was exhibiting mental illness at the time. Um, it's not something that people aren't aware of that that, that can contribute to that, because we hear it around the nation, but we thought we'd actually look at Michigan deaths of police officers who had died and kind of examine each of those cases. So we went back to about 20 years and we looked at the figures and we figured out that of 43 Michigan police officers killed since 1998, 13 of them were killed by people who suffered or showed signs of mental illness. So that's one in three? Yeah, it's about one in three, So which is a pretty high number. I mean, I didn't know where that number would be, but you knew you know it's significant just from news reports. And then that led us to look at some of these specific cases. Marquise Cromers came up because he had such an, and it turned out as we looked into it more and more, just you start seeing the pitfalls of the system where there were chances to intervene and maybe head him a different direction, and that never happened. And so this, as you've noted, is the result of some lengthy uh, work and investigation that you did. And part of what I found interesting in, in reading your work on this, Gus, is you go back into the history of uh, the mental health system in Michigan and how it interacts with our justice system. And c- can you give me some background on that? To be quick, I mean, if you think back to like the turn of the century, you think of the way we treated mentally ill people was almost like a jail. It was more to keep them out of society's hair. And I feel like that started to change. We got to became more compassionate towards mental illness. And that really uh, happened in the 60s, or I mean, up through the 60s. We had more facilities that didn't work just to hold people, but hoped to help them and get them out back in society. About 1963, under the Kennedy administration, there were some laws that passed that they kind of looked at personal rights and like how that how there has to be some respect for personal rights in regard to mental illness so it's kind of like a fine line that's when you start heading towards closure of state-run hospitals and the creation of these kind of county health departments who are kind of closer to the ground and the idea is to get the people back or not take them out of their normal lives and get them used to living a normal life rather than institutionalizing them and that that sounds like a great idea but has it been successful <laughs> Um, I mean, that's debatable. I, I was As I was reading through the comments of this, this old story, there's actually one comment from a reader that I think kind of highlights the other side of this. Um, I think a lot of people right now would say, no, we're not doing what we need to do because there are these situations happening where people are going in and out of psychiatrists' offices but not getting any help. But anyways, this one guy wrote, because he, he was apparently in one of the last state-run hospitals to close, and his comment was, I was one of the first adolescents to be released from Yorkwoods in Ypsilanti in 1992 due to defunding. I thank God every day that Engler freed me from the daily terror that I was subjected to for the crime of being sad, which was the result of an abusive teacher in public school. Was a result of abusive teachers in public school. Sadly, it was too late for me. The routine threats of keeping me in prison for life had broken me before release. I spent years terrified that bureaucrats could knock on my door and take me. So I think that kind of like just highlights the two sides of this like just because you're mentally ill just because you're not functioning well in society doesn't mean that the government has a right to 
strip you of your freedom. And actually, when we go back even further um, and what you were starting to say at the beginning of that was kind of how terrible the conditions in some of the first state-run psychiatric hospitals were, correct? I mean, that we get into the history of Nellie Bly, a a journalist uh, in the 1800s, I believe it was, who went into a psychiatric hospital undercover and discovered absolute abuses and all that. And then you get in the 1900s, things are getting better, but there's still, you know, kind of this friction, it seems, and and the ability for abuses of the personal rights. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, I've I've actually been in a few hospital mental psychiatric facilities. They're sterile and they're hard. The walls are white with cinder blocks and things like that a lot of times. But no, I don't think it's anywhere near what it used to be. There's definitely uh, more compassion in the treatment. Things have progressed significantly from even that time and not so long ago as we saw with some of those major abuses that Nellie Bly covered. Right. I mean, even since this this commenter, I mean, we there's fewer hospitals. I mean, there's really only people that could be in his situation. There's only about 800 current beds in. There's three adult hospitals, one forensic center, which is dedicated to criminals who are insane or getting people competent for trial. And then there's one juvenile facility. So there's really only 800 state-run beds where you can end up in a situation like this where you're even in what you'd call institutionalized or institutionalized in a psychiatric facility. That's given way to hospitals around the state trying to, they get licensed for psychiatric beds. So there's fewer beds. And in a lot of these hospitals, they don't want to take a serious, severely mental person and keep them in their hospital for months at a time or however long it takes to give them serious treatment. So what you end up with is people who are mentally ill, like if they get to the point where they're in a crisis, which is some, where Marquise Cromer was, he was having a crisis, what you can do is then get them committed, as they what they call it, and for a 72-hour hold. And then while in there, they, they can see a psychiatrist, and then at, at that point, they can extend it. But then you get into the funding, like do the... Is there, if it's a private hospital or a private mental facility, is there enough funding for them to want to keep that person and treat them long term? So a lot of times they, they'll let them leave. And that's what we saw with Marquise. He was in and out of mental facilities for short stints. And even his father, as he was getting really bad towards leading up to this tragedy, uh, he'd taken him into a psychiatrist. And, the guy, and they put him into what they call an intense outpatient therapy, which I don't know what that means exactly. I assume he's seeing a therapy often. He's getting medications and they're checking in on him, but his father says, you know, like you can tell him to come to a therapist, but if he doesn't think something's wrong with him and he stops seeing his medication, then he stops seeing his therapist and he's back to square one again. Okay, but I want to focus in on one thing that you were referring to, and it's kind of the, the systematic failures that led to this happening. And part of that comes in with the we refer to the funding and the different issues with the actual facilities being able to hold people and the capacities in that. And one thing, and I'm going to read off a quote that you included in your story here, and it's from a task force and its 2018 findings. It was a task force that was commissioned by the legislature in Michigan. Uh, Michigan state-run psychiatric hospitals are operating at full capacity, and there's a 200-person wait list on most days. In the absence of programs to care for individuals who need longer-term or complex care, many patients end up waiting in a hospital, emergency room, or a placement in a state facility. And now you've talked about some of that, but that 200 number is what really sticks with me in that wait list. Can you talk a little bit about whether or not this is kind of a a pervasive problem in Michigan or throughout the country? 
Oh, I'm sure it's across the country. I really didn't focus nationally on it, but I know they even have a task force that looks specifically at that issue of mentally ill people coming into hospitals. It, they, what they found basically was that these people can't get into psychiatric facilities, so they end up going to an emergency room. A lot of times emergency rooms are ill-equipped to help somebody who's having a mental crisis. So it just kind of turns into a thing where you hold them. And you, when you have time or you can get a psychiatrist to come talk to them, then they can make the determination for a court order to put them into a facility for greater treatment. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely weighs on emergency rooms across the nation. Are efforts being made to try and fix this system a little bit? There's some very small efforts as far as state-run facilities because they are right now working on $150 million, I think is what I heard, to build a new facility up in Cairo, which is where they already have one. But it's really only supposed to add about 50 beds. So, like, what's that going to do for this problem? But the other thing they're looking at is trying to make, trying to entice these private or nonprofit hospitals to license more beds for psychiatric care. You, you mean they would be funded through grants or through Medicaid or Medicare, whatever the funding comes from. Right now, a lot of hospitals just don't want to deal with that. They don't want to have a wing devoted to mentally ill people who can cause disruption and annoy other patients and things like that. So they're, they're trying to, I think, put the money there to make it worthwhile so that there are more state beds available. And some of what your reporting also showed is that this is an issue that impacts not only police officers, but civilians uh, on the other side of those police interactions. Can you discuss that a little bit? Well, I mean, you could argue that uh, the stats actually show that more of the people killed by police, a bigger percentage, are mentally ill than when you reverse it, the mentally ill people killing police. It was closer to about 38% over, and that was only going back five years because there's not as good of records on victims. Yeah, obviously it can go both ways. I mean, police are going into situations where they're on edge as well, and then you've got someone who's a, a lot of times if you're having a mental crisis, you're acting erratically, you're not hearing or listening or understanding instructions, and police are expecting you to respond to their instructions, and then sometimes they react, and I think that's what leads in some cases to people who are mentally ill, not listening, disobeying, and dying. And, you know, I want to note, and I think we've discussed this too, that, you know, data shows, and and we've heard that it's not really the prominent figure. Most people that are suffering from a mental illness are not violent, uh, but we, within these interactions with police that we're talking about, obviously that becomes a concern. And, you know, a little bit of what you referred to there was talking about police reactions to that, and I know we want to talk about that a little bit next week, about their training and what goes into the decisions they're making and all of that. But, you know, just briefly, can you give us another idea of what else we're going to be learning next week as we continue this multi-part series? Well, for one, I uh, when I was reporting on this story, I went and I visited Marquise Cromer after he'd been convicted. So I'd like to talk a little bit about what, he, what kind of treatment he's getting behind bars, what happened with him, how he ended up behind bars, talk a little bit more about the police officer he killed, and then uh, some solutions that people have brought to me throughout the investigation, and some different things that police are doing to try to protect themselves and mentally ill suspects. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to hear it. Gus, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, This is Darcy Moran. This is Gus Burns. And this is Michigan Crime Stories. Next time on Michigan Crime Stories. My husband was a respected officer that upheld the law. My husband was a hero. My husband was murdered. 
My husband was murdered in cold blood, shot in the chest. Stopping a man who had terrorized the city of Detroit with senseless violence over and over again. I'd like to thank Marquise Cromer's father, Sterling Cromer, and his attorney, Sanford Shulman, for speaking to me for the story. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any tips or story ideas, contact me at fburns at mlive.com. That's F-B-U-R-N-S at mlive.com. This is Gus Burns, and this is Michigan Crime Stories. <laughs>